You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. The iconic gay rights image, you know, the person we think of when we think of the phrase gay rights is the activist. You know, loud, megaphone blaring, fighting on the streets, and those people were incredibly important. But we don't often think about the people in the village or the Castro who were just kind of there, living, making space for gay people and doing their jobs. I'm talking about quiet people, talking about straight people. We don't often talk about, you know, for example, the personal evolution of a highly devout straight Jewish woman who also happened to be selling porn in a bookstore in West Hollywood at the height of the AIDS epidemic, or her husband who almost went to jail for it, just for selling it, for selling porn. In the 80s, this is a world that just existed, and it is a world I want to take a closer look at today. I'm the director of the newly released Netflix original documentary called Circus of Books, which is about my family and their really unlikely rise to success in the gay porn enterprise known as Circus of Books. I recently had the very awesome opportunity to talk with the documentary filmmaker, Rachel Mason. I've got an audience of mostly straight people, which is awesome, truly. I love you guys. Please stick around. But something I've seen happen recently among straight people I know is this kind of misunderstanding of how bad it was for gay men, you know, just a few decades ago in this country. That's because I think justifiably, a lot of us, gay and straight, are looking around at the really kind of crazy language coming from a loud fringe group of activists today. And we're all thinking like, okay, it's not actually that bad. So maybe it was never that bad. But gay sex was illegal. If you were caught at a gay bar, you were taken to jail in New York, in San Francisco. The conversion therapy of mid-century America was not limited to irritating religious group chat. All right, it included brain surgery. Queer representation in cinema? That was not even something people were asking for because they were still terrified, and rightly so, to come out of the closet. This is why the role of gay porn is, I think, a little different in the lives of gay people than the role of straight porn is among straight people. For a lot of young gay guys especially, and especially gay guys a little older, the first depiction of their sexuality they saw in any kind of media was erotic. It wasn't TV, because that didn't exist. It wasn't books or comics. None of that was there. It was porn. And a few decades ago, before the internet, that meant VHS tapes and magazines traded around discreetly, almost reverently, like Madonna albums in a communist prison state. And so the gay bookstore was not just a place for smut, it was meaningful. It was, once upon a time, important. Rachel said something to me a little bit into the interview that really surprised me and I think is true. The work is done through commerce. That's how everything changes. We talked about all of this, you know, the world of porn and gay porn, Rachel's family, her work, and Larry Flint, the bounds of free speech, queer cinema, and is Pete Buttigieg actually gay enough? You know, this is something that mainstream gay writers have been talking about, which I think is insane, and we're going to take that apart. From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. It's funny, I've never actually interviewed, I've interviewed a lot of people, but never a creator of a, of a film before. And in those interviews, I, I always see people like, oh, I saw your movie and I loved your movie. And it always seemed like kind of funny to me. I was like, they didn't see that movie. And they didn't like that movie. Well, I saw your movie and I loved your movie. I absolutely loved it. It spoke to me as a gay guy. It spoke to me as, I think more importantly than that, and this is something I really want to talk to you about, what I loved about your movie. So this is the film. I mean, it is following your family. You know, you're growing up, your mom and dad, the sort of like improbable couple. Your mom is extremely religious. Both your mom and your dad are extremely straight. 
And they're running this little gay porn shop in the middle of this would have been the 80s. So we're dealing with AIDS, gay rights, like it is a crazy time. And that kind of person, this profile of person, they were a part of gay rights. Like they were in, they were in that story. We just, no one is ever telling that story. No one, no one is ever looking at, at, at the shop owners and, and like the bar owners and, and, and being like, well, who are they? Like, who's the random camera guy in the Castro who is just like a part of that community as well and like supporting all these people, the straight world. So I love that. I loved, I loved seeing that story. I think maybe we just start with what I think is one of the central, maybe the central theme of, of the show, but you can, I mean, you know more than me, you created it. Uh, it seems like your relationship with your mom and, and your mom felt to me like the anchor of the whole thing. Do you want to tell me just like, what was the inspiration for this movie for you? And then... What was it like working so closely with your family? In particular, I'm, I'm wondering about your mom's relationship to all of this. Wow. Well, first off, you totally hit the nail on the head with everything that I was aiming for anybody to get from this film. So, you know, it really means a lot to me also that you're being very open and saying as a gay man, this film meant something to you because... I will say flat out, that is my world. You know, you know Buck Angel, and we, we joke because Buck is a gay man. He's <laughs> had a transsexual man's body. But, you know, basically, I really, you know, I felt this sense of kinship that was, in an, and I identify as queer and bisexual, and so within the LGBT spectrum. But really, there's something very special and poignant about the history that gay men specifically within the LGBT movement, I don't think have properly been historicized. And I don't think gay porn has actually been really given the value that I knew it to have from sort of an insider's perspective, but also from the perspective of all my dear friends. And then the elders, you know, when you talk to really elderly gay men, I mean, my mom used to find that she would get a call from someone's estate and they would say, well, we've located a box and we're calling the Circus of Books. And my mom would come and find this pristine box, usually well-kept, well-preserved of porn. And it was like this very kind of almost sacred thing for these older men. And I had men coming up to me and, you know, just in tears, really, you know, talking about the importance of porn. And when you think of porn, it's like, it's always been so degraded in our culture. And that's actually what I love about your hereticon thing. It's like, why is there a sense of heresy around this thing that is truly therapeutic? And it was there for gay men at a time when they actually had nothing and they lived in isolation and they were going to go to jail and be outed. And, you know, those stories were so profound to me. So I really wanted to pack that into this film in a way that could be felt. And so the fact that people are telling me that, that, you know, they really see that, to me, it, it sort of redeems the whole enterprise. It redeems the sex business. You know, even just now, I was looking at the, um, you know, the, the federal uh, relief we have. It eliminates sex workers from, I mean, explicitly. You cannot, if you, even if you pay taxes as a sex worker, you're not eligible for the COVID relief. So there's this degradation of that. And so to, to get into your question about my mom and the relationship there, my mom was on the other side of things. She was mm -hmm. on the anti-porn side of things, weirdly, in her head. You know, even to this day, she's screaming about it and to be sort of wrestling with internal homophobia while at the same time on the front lines fighting for it fighting for first amendment rights and fighting for gay rights and really it's a fascinating thing for me too and a maddening thing you know i was many 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 years of frustration trying to talk my mom into um you know changing her views and i think that's actually the, the crux of the film is that someone like me doesn't actually necessarily 
change one's views. It's really my mom and her own work and her own sort of biblical thinking that had to change. And I think because of that, she shows other people and other people who are just like her, hard-lined religious people, how to think differently. So there was sort of like these two kind of polar opposite things that I was trying to, to do in the film. And the fact that it's accomplished that is so satisfying because truthfully, you know, I care so much about the gay men in my life who are at the center of my life, including my younger brother, who's really my best friend. And I love that it's been important to this particular community. I want to talk more about your mom and I want to talk more about we were just starting to get into the free speech stuff and also the way that sex workers and adult entertainment stars are treated not just by culture, but also like systemically. There are these systemic things like it's hard to get banking, which is crazy because it just in the case of adult entertainment specifically, I mean, that's that's legal. And they pay taxes. Yep. But first, you said something I thought was really interesting a moment ago that made me realize something that I've not ever thought about before which is and it's related to something that one of the char- one of the characters it's a real it's a documentary one of the yeah. it's related to something that one of the men in your documentary said which was that um porn for him and i think a lot of people don't my audience is not it's it's not exclusively gay so i don't know that they're really going to get this part but so i, I want to make it clear yeah. um porn is this thing and we can have a whole conversation about porn and and how it relates to society and is it degrading or not i don't think it is but that's a whole other conversation i think for what gay men experienced while watching porn especially decades ago that was their only exposure to two men touching each other and and, and then i thought about it in my own and i'm 34 so i'm realizing actually the first time that i ever saw two men kiss was when I was sneaking upstairs to the computer to like look at gay porn. My only exposure to even what a gay person could be in the mainstream society was like sort of I was 17 or something when I was watching Will and Grace and that didn't speak to me at all. Those men were, they broke ground. I'm not going to try and attack them for their creation, but like they were sexless. They didn't touch each other. Yeah, they were caricatures. And I think that this is exactly, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, you're 34 Imagine talking to a guy who was 74. And and that's why literally they would burst into tears because, you know, and I will say for sure, um, gay women and trans people also found their way to erotic content as the place where they could see themselves as well. But this is what porn was that was so different from heterosexual porn. And I almost think there's like a divide, like apples and orange. We, we, we oranges. We're not talking even about the same thing. Heterosexual people have the luxury of seeing themselves represented on television, in ads, everywhere you turn, holding hands on the street, whatever you want to say, that is the norm of our culture. And yes, we're not criminalized today, which is what the people who are our elders experienced, you know, actual hospitalization and jail. I mean, it's really, when you think about the reality of that and letting that sink in, that they were hospitalized for being gay, you subjected to torture for being gay, literally uh, lobotomies, and then also jail and losing their job and then being outed in the newspaper. And if they had a family, the whole thing was like this unbelievable cruelty. I mean, suicide was actually built into gay history because what else are you going to do when you lose your job and you lose everything and your humanity is stripped away? So these are the people that when they found gay erotic content, really, it was truly like a salvation. I mean, it was actually on that level. So I think younger generations still have a residual of that. We are not represented in the mainstream at all. So you see it in porn and it gave you a feeling of freedom or a confirmation that your fantasies are valid. And I think that's one of these things that, you know, because 
the P word is so condemned and it's, you know, covered in guilt and shame and religious symbolism that, you know, all the things that are heavy, you know, society has weighted on it. Uh, You look at the reality and it's this incredible ridiculousness, you know, human beings have sex. It's, we (laughs) pretend that doesn't happen because if we do, none of us would be here first off. Secondly, homosexuality has been around since the actual existence of humans. It's a fascinating thing to dissect maybe why we condemn it so much. But I think what you're saying is exactly what the point is. And I would love for heterosexual people to see this because actually this film is as much for heterosexual audiences as it is for the gays. I mean, I'm the gay audience who would have loved to see this film and would be rooting for it. But to me, the even more powerful messages are coming from people like, actually, weirdly enough, I got a message from uh, a guy who, who recognized himself in the high school hallway. And he wrote back and said, you know, he's a coach now. And he was really, he was the guy who, when I was talking about my brother, Josh, being so worried about, you know, the jocks picking on the gays, I cut to a shot of him in the hallway and he was the jock (laughs) that I had actually shot myself. And he was like, you know, Rachel, I don't know if you remember me, but we were in high school together and I barely knew you, but I, you, you seem to have shot me in the hallway and I want to let you know I'm an ally and I watched your movie and I was really kind of offended that I was the jock, you know, that you cut to when you say the jocks picking on the gays, because I make it part of my daily routine with my kids that I teach not to be you know, bashing gays. And I was like, oh, oh my God, cool. We're here now. And yeah, I'm sorry. I, I singled you out as like the jock who's picking on the gays. But you know, it really was the time. I remember the jocks picking on the gays in high school myself. I mean, you could be just called a faggot. You know, it was a thing in the 90s. And who was on television, these jokey caricatures, all of society could laugh at because- right. You know, and I think that's also profound when Josh in my interview says, you know, Rachel, your world was too gay because I was part of the two gays. I was the Alaskas. I was the RuPaul's people. You know, my friends were the freaks with the face piercings and the tattoos. And, you know, what about just being gay and having a boyfriend and actually being an engineer like my brother? And, you know, we didn't have space for that. It was just you're going to wave your freak flag and that's who's going to represent gay culture. Yeah, it seemed to me back then... Uh, it was so hard for me to come to terms. Well, isn't that hard, I guess. I mean, I kind of started thinking about it at 16. By 17, I started coming out to people, but it was a horrible year. And I remember the main problem I had was not being able to understand. I just didn't see myself anywhere. Mm -hmm. And all I had was will and grace. And I thought like, that's not me. So do people like me even exist? Like, what is, what am I? Like, it it wasn't just the gay part. It was all of the associations that our culture had on gay people. And that was including the sort of self-proclaimed allies at the time. And it was like, we were championing these people, but porn was something else. It was dangerous. And you can even see that in some of the, I mean, leather has been a part of gay porn from the beginning and the gay scene from the beginning, like, what is that? I always wonder like, what is that? And it's like, that's dangerous. That's edge. That's darkness. It's like, there's a whole other part of gay men. And this is just, uh, yeah, I just, I really loved the way that, that you were exploring that. Now, obviously the big piece, I mean, you have the relationship with your mom and your family, but there's the bookstore. It's circus of books is this gay bookstore in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. It was like this place of community for gay men, but it was also a place where people were just coming to buy porn. And there was this incredible exchange with your mom and dad. And here I want to talk about the ways that maybe your parents have both internalized some 
weird sense of guilt, even while they were on the forefronts of like fighting for this stuff. Your dad says, you know, we would get better books too. Your mom says, what do you mean better? And she kind of snaps at him and he goes, well, the New York Review of Books. And he's then cut off and she goes, no, New York Review of Books never sold very well. What sold well was Hustler. And I love that because there is this bizarre thing we do in culture separate from porn, which is we don't like to look at the things that people are actually watching. Yeah. We don't like to engage with what culture really is. We have this fake version of it. Like the New York Review of Books, <laughs> who cares? Why does it matter that you get in the New York Review of Books? Like your, like your mom said, no one reads it. It's wild. But your dad felt the need to remind everybody like, hey, we also sold the New York Review of Books. Yeah. No, and I think there's this push-pull that they both do that's kind of what it makes it this sort of comedic, funny thing as well. You know, that always got a ton of laughs. I mean, I showed it at all these film festivals. And one of the things that's really kind of awesome and funny about their dynamic is that on the one hand, you know, my mom was actually the brains behind the business. And she's the one who was like, are they buying it? Great. I'll, let's sell it. You know, she's like the Larry Flint of the business. You know, my mom was a total 100% let's do this. And my dad, in some ways, is a little bit more quaint, and yet he's actually the more open-minded one on a personal level. You know, he was totally 100%, no qualms, nothing, never, you know, truly, like, he's just a deeply open-minded guy. You know, my mom is the religious moral authority and judgy, and yet, you know, it's really, it gave me some insight, though, I will have to say, is that when I interviewed Larry Flint, you know, talk about, you know, a First Amendment hero, and just, yeah. I didn't understand sort of the depth of his activism, which is sort of similar to my parents. They're like accidental activists. They're not out there, you know, with their little lapel pins and waving flags and saying, they're just doing the work that actually the work is done through commerce. And it's an amazing little thing. You know, when I was realizing what Larry Flint did by, you know, he could have just stuck with Hustler, but he was given the option to distribute a handful of gay titles. And I asked him, I said, you know, why did you even bother with that? Like, you could have just not, you know, in the 70s, it was actually a pretty repulsive population in the mainstream. You know, you, people were condemned who were gay. And he said, well, I just thought, is there a market for it? If there is, let's do it. You know, and it was just to each their own, that kind of sense of like, in a way, that is the greatest thing about America. It's like, you know, when you have this sense of like, okay, if we can do it, freedom, let's do it. And, and he's, you know, he's like the best kind of, free speech advocate you could ever have because he wasn't even looking at like, well, they're gay. Let me think about this for a minute. He was just like, that's a market. I don't care. I just sort of love that that also was what sort of shepherded in this revolution for gay people everywhere. I mean, really, it was Larry Flint, a straight guy who was like the smut peddler who feminists hated being, you know, so maverick. And actually, I was a student at Yale. And one of the things that I did when I was there, because I always loved Larry Flint, was I invited him to speak. And I had this um, feminist teacher, professor come up and said, you know, Rachel, I cannot believe you would ever bring a disgusting smut peddler like Larry Flint to Yale. You know, this is a respectful institution. And I, I'm like, do you know that Larry Flint is one of the few people that actually puts his name on his political efforts that he will, you know, when he sees hypocrisy in politics, he goes out there and does something about it. And it's just a really incredible thing to see that through line between people in the adult business and freedom of speech activism that totally shapes our government. And it's so important. And I did it because I was at Yale during the Bush administration. And I had so much conflict about what was happening during that time. It was like, who is keeping our government in check? And it was like, nobody. The Democrats certainly weren't. I mean, they really weren't. I was like, okay, nobody's keeping the government in check. 
Larry Flint is, you know, a guy from the porn world. So I brought him to Yale to speak to the students because I was like, who better to actually influence people but somebody that set out on their own as a maverick businessman and entrepreneur. And, you know, I, I love that people in the entrepreneurial fields are almost always the most open-minded on just sort of a cultural level. On Larry Flynn, I'm glad we got to him. You included this quote that I think is just incredible and kind of frames everything for me, which he said, this country belongs to me as much as it belongs to them. And this is while he was fighting for mm. essentially the First Amendment. It's like at the end of the day, so now separate from the gay question, separate from you know your family, there is just this question of porn. It is highly triggering to people. It was extremely triggering to people, you know, in the 80s and the 70s, the 60s. Back then, it seemed to come more from the religious right. I think today it, it still does. And yet also now it's, I mean, you mentioned the feminist critique of porn. So there was always that. I think that's gotten a lot louder. You have a lot of the sort of like radical feminist community people who are like, you know, porn is essentially rape. They're, of course, focused just on straight porn. It's like, I don't think that gay porn quite factors into their worldview somehow. Somehow not. Yeah, but keep going. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, one, what is it about porn that drives people insane in this way? And then two, Larry Flint, it seems like he's right. I mean, what what right does someone else have to tell you what to do with your own body? As long as it's consensual, I, I don't understand. This is like my core, one of my core beliefs, really. It's like, who are you to tell me what to do with myself. Well, and that's why I do think people in the porn industry are on the front lines of this. And it trickles out to everything else in our culture completely. But I think porn people are usually on the front lines literally and physically, and they get the most abuse. They get the most hurt. I mean, look at Larry Flint. He's in a wheelchair because a man went to the actual court and shot him. He was shot and nearly died for doing exactly what he continued to do and believed in. And, you know, my parents know a lot of people that went to jail for it. I mean, they actually went to jail and served hard time. And my parents got very close to going to jail. In fact, when I was interviewing their lawyer, who's one of the most amazing people, actually, he'd be a great person for you to have on the show if you care about the First Amendment, because he defended uh, people like Larry Flynn. He defended the people that produced um, uh, Deep Throat, anyone that got in trouble. It was like, they called John Weston probably nearly bankrupted my parents to hire John Weston, but they knew everyone in the industry said, if there's any chance you can avoid jail time, it's if you use John Weston. And John looked at me right in the eyes. He said, Rachel, you know, I had no clarity whatsoever that your parents were not going to go to jail, both of them, not just your dad, for uh, quite a significant period of time. So it would have taken my parents out of my childhood. And what I find so kind of ridiculous about the uh, question and when people say, well, pornography is the enemy of family values, you know, you see the um, Simon Lisa prosecutor in Ohio saying this. I wanted to juxtapose that with the image of my family, which actually couldn't have been more wholesome. I mean, I have to say, you know, I give it to my parents. They did a very great job of being the perfect, you know, gay pornographer family. But we, we I had no idea about their world. And I grew up, you know, I had an actual soccer mom and my dad was a soccer dad. Yeah, there was this moment when you found out I mean, you were in high school and the crazy one, you know, you're the artist and you have all the gay friends and you have the, your hair is a crazy color. And it's like in yeah. high school, you find out from your gay friends that your parents are the bookstore that you grew up knowing about is actually a porn shop. You had no idea. And it, it is funny. I mean, watching your family, of course, I believe, I believe that completely that you didn't know. They were just like the picture of sort of like family values. Totally. I mean, and it's funny because I actually had friends that had cool parents and I was really jealous that, you know, I grew up in Hollywood. So I had friends who had 
rock star parents, producers, filmmakers, writers, musicians. And it just, you know, my parents were square and boring and every day was just about invoices and payroll. And I mean, really, it was that. It was like nothing else that I ever heard. It was just small business stuff. I mean, they could have been selling anything. So it was really shocking to me when I you know, went into the store in my teenagers myself and, and had to recognize that this place that I had seen throughout my childhood, when you go into the over teen section or actually look around, had so much more into it. And, you know, it's, it is kind of fascinating. I will say this because to get back to this sort of acceptance and society and, you know, why this had to be such a secret in the first place, why couldn't it actually just be like, yeah, this is what my parents do. You know, um, I have a kid, he's seven, you know, and it's sort of funny because I've been he knows that there's a movie right now and he's sort of not supposed to see it, but I've had some other people write to me who are like 15 who actually are kids. They've seen the movie and they, they love it and all this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, I don't know in my head, like when's the age appropriate time to tell kids about porn. But I think it's sort of like when they find out about it themselves. And I think there's this amazing thing that is happening and it could be I'm beginning to just accept the fact that this movie is doing something to change our culture. And it's so exciting to me because I do feel like even now, you know, even though you're 34 and you, you're just telling me how difficult it was, you didn't see it reflected in our society. You know, the most amazing thing that happened when I was almost done making this film was that Ryan Murphy came on board. The fact that there is a Ryan Murphy, I mean, come on, there was like never an out gay man at that level in Hollywood until Ryan Murphy showed up and was like, hey, fuck you, I'm gay, and I'm going to make gay content, and it's going to be awesome, and you can, you know, stick it, because Hollywood was a really straight place, you know, there was a sort of set of content, and, you know, I, in 15 minutes, I'm meeting with Jill Soloway, and, like, another unabashed queer person who is, like, I'm going to make queer-ass content, and just, there's this incredible thing that I think my film is the beneficiary of right now, because I think there's a hunger for it because it was so kept out of our society. It was so kept out of our culture. And I don't think gayness is actually sort of separate from our culture. I think it's embedded. Everybody in the entire world has family members and friends who are gay. There is not this sort of like, yeah, well, there's the LGBT films over there. And it was so interesting even to recognize that this film started off as sort of like highly LGBT you know, I wasn't even given the opportunity to premiere at Tribeca. It was in the viewpoint section. It wasn't in competition as like a main major documentary. So I feel like this film is just proving itself. It's being the dark horse, which I kind of love. And that's actually what I think the gay struggle is. We are like a population that's the dark horse. That's like, hey, you know what, Pete Buttigieg, that man served multiple tours in Iraq. Did our president do that? I don't think so. I mean, here's like a guy who is like the image of wholesome running for president and like coming out there with his husband and just it being a, you know, it's so amazing that that's this year. On Pete Buttigieg, what I thought was really disorienting was the reception to him, not from straight people, but from gay people. You had like prominent writers in gay outlets, like Out Magazine and places like this, sort of criticizing him for not being gay enough. Yeah, and and this, th where there is, there really is this problem with, I think it's a honestly like a minority of people within the community who really believe that to be gay is to say 
you know, so many weird things about you. You have to be like radical and crazy and revolutionary and I don't know, controversial. And I like to be controversial as much as the next guy, but I don't think it has much to do with who I want to have sex with. Exactly. What is your read on that? I mean, your parents were these wholesome people doing this thing, like not really fitting the mold. Here we have Pete. He is really getting criticized by these people for not looking the part, for being too straight. Like, what is all that? What do you make of that? My reaction is it's the most ridiculous bullshit. It's the kind of thing that keeps our community in this little camp where everyone's going to say, wow, you gays are so filled with internal hate, you're going to fight each other. And that's, it's insane. There should be gay Republicans. There should be gay libertarians. There should be gay Democrats. There should be gay radicals. I mean, there should be gay everything that is represented in the rest of our culture. And we, there's absolutely, it's disgusting to me that there's any self-censorship because that's just censorship. I mean, let's get a gay Republican to fight against Pete Buttigieg on the other side. I mean, really like, well, I would really love to see that. Actually, I'd really like to see an out gay Republican and, and like shift the narrative because gays shouldn't just be forced to be a certain type of gay, like, you know, a liberal weirdo like me, you know, and I'm speaking as one of those liberal radical weirdos. So I find that my little scene of people is so intolerant. Uh, If I don't get someone's pronoun right, you know, they want to freaking lynch me. And it's like, actually, I live in a world, I say that as someone who has a transsexual partner who also uses a term that everyone seems to hate, you know, and the word is outmoded by some people. And so I'm like, really, okay, this is your cause to champion, you know, attacking another gay person. I mean, first off, if there's any one thing I would just say is that we're still such outsiders we're still such a minority that a win for just one, I mean, to even just get to be a political candidate, I mean, let's have a moment and celebrate that. I mean, I don't even freaking care, actually. If he was on the other political party that I supported, I would be so delighted to see a veteran who's a mayor be a gay man. I mean, that's just so cool. And I, I find it so crazy that we get to this point and then we're like, let's take him down. You know, and I really hope that's actually not a trend in our community. I think that there's a, as you were saying, I think it's a minority within, but I think it's easy for us to get hurt by those voices. And I think it's easy for us to fall prey to being called out because it hurts. You know, I noticed it for myself. I, my film had 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like obscenely amazing and crazy. And then it got down to 98% because one reviewer <laughs> gave it a bad review. And it, you know, that was the review I read. <laughs> I basically didn't read all these other reviews. And I was like, wow, I want to see what that guy has to say. You know, and it's like, we do, we really, I think as humans, we are drawn towards the criticism because it's part of just our nature, maybe. So I just think it's so important that we don't self-destruct in this process where we just barely got acceptance. I mean, acceptance alone was so hard fought. I mean, people died. Much earlier in the conversation, we were talking about, uh, again, the, the difference between your mom and your dad and their approaches to these things or to the question of a circus of books. And it was interesting because your mom was more business oriented. Like she just did it. Like your dad was more open-minded generally, but your mom was the one who was like, front lines. It is what it is. She also had this background in journalism where she did fight for free speech. And maybe that's the core value, right? It's free speech. And in it, in the documentary, there was this quote, um, sorry, I'm blanking now if it was you or your mom who said it, but uh, I certainly felt like the quote was for the film. Our first amendment rights are protected by the most extreme kinds of speech. 
That was my mom's quote. Yeah. Why is it so important? Separate from porn, separate from, you know, smut, separate from our history with sex and God and everything else in this country. What is it about extreme speech that you're drawn to that we need to protect, even if it's offensive, even if you yourself can't stand it? Tell me about that. Well, I think especially if it's offensive, it needs to be protected. You know, I think especially those views that are the hardest for us to hear, you know, that is why the ACLU had to defend the Nazis when they marched on on Skokie. It's painful. It's not positive in some ways if you uh, are are looking at like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to support supposed hate speech. But if we don't support that, then we're going to censor our ability to have argument and conversation and discuss, well, why uh, are you this way? And why am I that way? And I just think that that as soon as we move into the territory of canceling, cancel culture to me is the most offensive thing right now, because what I see is kind of that happening with, with or without First Amendment. We have the First Amendment and we're fighting for it. And, you know, the most obscene things that people say on the internet are thankfully allowed to be said. But what I've been noticing is that the younger generation or the internet generation or whatever you might want to call it, internet mobs, like to go after people and try to cancel them. And I think one of the most important things that can be done is to fight back, is to say, you know what? Okay, you might have a mob, but I have my voice and you're not going to cancel me. You might call me uh, sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic. I don't care. This is my view, but I'm going to be able to say it. And I actually think that, you know, I happen to be lucky that I have a partner who is, (laughs) I get to witness it and I don't have to do it all myself. But, you know, if you look at Buck Angel's Twitter feed, it's pretty much all about that because he provokes a lot of conversation in that way. I think that we really lose our entire ability to even just have any healing if we don't have dialogue. You are listening to Problematic.